Well, the story of, of Christmas is a story of grace, and uh, we discover even in the genealogy of, of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew chapter 1, uh, stories of grace on display. Uh, stories of grace, especially in the lives of the women who are listed there, and it's been their stories that we've uh, been looking at during these weeks of, of Advent. Uh, and this morning we come to the story of a woman whose name who is not even listed by name in the genealogy of, of Jesus, uh, but hers is another story of grace, and it's the story of Bathsheba. And uh, her story uh, takes us back to the really awful, shameful events that we read about uh, in the Old Testament book of, of 2 Samuel and chapter 11. So I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there, 2 Samuel 11, where you'll find the text uh, that we'll be looking at and reading this morning in your worship guide. So let's hear the God's word to us this morning. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and, and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all, his servant, with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will do, not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock uh, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. It's been almost 25 years since the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh, and it was only just uh, a few years ago that Monica Lewinsky actually began to speak out about it publicly. And she said this, In 1998, I lost my reputation and my dignity. I lost almost everything. I almost lost my life. Overnight, I went from being a completely private figure to a publicly humiliated one worldwide. I was patient zero of losing a personal reputation on a global scale almost instantaneously. This rush to judgment enabled by technology led to mobs of virtual stone throwers. Granted, it was before social media, but people could still comment online, email stories, and of course, email cruel jokes. News sources plastered photos of me all over to sell newspapers, banner ads online, and to keep people turned to the TV. Do you recall a particular image of me, say, wearing a beret? Now, I admit I made mistakes, especially wearing that beret, but the attention and judgment that I received, not the story, but that I personally received, was unprecedented. I was branded as a tramp, tart, or bimbo, and of course, that woman. I was seen by many, but actually known by few. And I get it. It is easy to forget that that woman was dimensional, had a soul, and was once unbroken. You know, this story, this very famous story in 2 Samuel 11 centers on David, and it's actually told from David's perspective. And we actually don't get a lot concerning Bathsheba's thoughts and actions. But what I want to do this morning is actually tell the story from her perspective. After all, she's in the lineage. She's in the family tree of Jesus. And she too has been labeled throughout history as a temptress, as an adulteress, as that woman. But what we want to do this morning is see that that woman has dimension and she has soul and she was once unbroken. 
And so we're going to walk through two parts of her story, look at it from two angles. One is heartbreak, and the other is hope. There is both for Bathsheba, heartbreak and hope. So we're going to start with the heartbreak. Now, we're told in the passage that Bathsheba is, is very beautiful, very attractive, and she's bathing, and David sees her. Now, she was not bathing on a rooftop, contrary to Leonard Cohen's lyrics to Hallelujah. She was not bathing on a rooftop, but David was on a rooftop. David was the one who, from his high palace, sees her from afar, and she is bathing. And, and what David does is he asks the question to his entourage, who is she? And the answer he receives is, she is the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, who is Iliam and who is Uriah? Well, Iliam would have been one of David's faithful soldiers. This, this would have been someone who was unconditionally loyal to David throughout the, the years. Iliam would have been right there to, alongside him to help him and to support him. And Bathsheba is his daughter. And who is Uriah the Hittite? Well, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. When David, and you can read this earlier in Samuel, when David was a fugitive in the wilderness being hunted down by King Saul, this group of friends, these mighty men, they, they defended David and they, they risked their own lives to save him. And one of the mighty men, one of these mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. So this isn't just any, any guy. This is actually someone. Uriah is someone who risked his life for David. But it didn't matter at all. He threw it all out the window. A faithful soldier, the mighty men, it didn't matter. What, what is the point here? The point is David, even though he didn't know her personally, David knew her family. And her family was loyal to David, were friends to David, but it didn't matter. In a moment of lust, he summons her to himself. And she wouldn't have known. This is where I want to, to start considering things from Bathsheba's perspective to give her some dimension and, and, a, and a soul. She would not have known why David summoned for her. But consider this, the most powerful man in the world summons for you. And the text says that she had purified herself from her uncleanness. She was, she was following the Mosaic law regarding her monthly period, so she was not pregnant. And yet she arrives because the king called. And then David has his way with her. And it's at, at this very point where we, we need to be reminded of something we re, as we read this text. We, we need to be reminded of the powerlessness of this woman in this passage. And the unchecked power of the king in this passage. I mean, David sees her, he's inflamed with lust, and he calls her to the palace. And it doesn't say anything about how complicit, complicit she is in this, but hey, the king calls you? That's an that's a unequal power situation going on there. You don't really say no when the uncontested monarch calls you to their palace. When the king summons you, you go. And then when the king wants to sleep with you, there's not much you can do. You, you have no cultural clout. You have no higher authority to appeal to. So what does the king do? The king takes what the king wants. This is a, this is a gross abuse of power. She's polluted by someone else's sin. And it's, and it's a little later in the passage where she, we, we do finally hear from Bathsheba. Finally she speaks. And what does she say? I'm pregnant. 
Now, we're not told this, but we can imagine that Bathsheba hears that David, after finding out that she's pregnant, is summoning for Uriah. He's calling him in from the the battlefield, and David's going to reward Uriah with some gifts she hears. But surprisingly, Uriah never comes home. Her, her, her husband doesn't show up at the door, but, but she hears then that, that he's back out at, at the battle. Oh, okay, that's, that's what my man's like. He, he went back to the battle. He's, he's loyal to his country. He's loyal to the king. He goes to battle. And then she hears that he's been killed in battle. And, 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 and we, we're, we're told that she grieves for her husband. So she's just lost her husband. She's grieving her husband. And then she is summoned again by the king. What is it this time? Well, the king wants to take her as, as a wife, one of many wives, and bring her to be in part, of, part of his harem. This is, this is what Bathsheba is going through. Listen, it, it, it wouldn't have taken much for her to understand the crime that had been committed, to understand the cover-up the cover that had taken place, and to see that David, by all appearances, is looking like he's just getting away with it. This is, this is her perspective. I mean, just think what it would have been like to, to know all about this man who summoned you, who used his power and privilege and position to essentially force you into sleeping with him and then to watch him get away with murder. Now he wants to take you as his wife. I mean, this is David. This is, this is the shepherd of Israel. He is the spiritual leader of, of Israel. I mean, think about it. I mean, consider when, when I'm mean, when I'm ugly, when I'm, when I'm hurtful to my wife, and then she has to come here and listen to, to me tell you people how to live a godly life, right? Can we just sit with that for a second? Imagine your Bathsheba. You, you've been taken advantage of, and in the morning of the death of your husband, the king summons you, and now you have to live with this jerk, this low life forever, because you don't have any choice. And all the while, he's getting away with it. Everyone looks at him and thinks he is, he is all that. He is the tops. Everyone looks at him and sees him as the spiritual leader. Everyone looks at him and sees him as the righteous king of this eternal kingdom to come. I mean, Think of what it's like to be Bathsheba. Look, look at it from her perspective. This woman who has a soul, this woman who, who, who has dimension. And then in the next chapter, God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan says, hey, David, I've got a situation for you. I need your help. Something's happened in the kingdom. I need your help. There's a rich man, and the rich man has a bunch of cattle and and." And there's a poor man, and the poor man has one little itty-bitty baby lamb. And this lamb, I mean, it's more than a pet to him. It's like a daughter to him. He feeds the lamb, scraps under the table. He cuddles with the lamb. And, and you know what? A guest came into town to visit the rich man. And as is the custom in the, the ancient Near East, when guests come, you, you, are, you are very hospitable. And so the rich man, having plenty of cattle of his own, decides to take... The poor, man's one, or the poor man's one little poor lamb and slaughter it and feed it to the, his guest. 
And then Nathan says, what, what do we do? What, what should we do? You're the judge. You're the judge of Israel. You're the king. What should we do? And David hears it and is furious. His anger is greatly, it says, kindled against the man. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, what is happening here? Why is it that David totally flips out when he hears this and, and says, they've got to die? Well, think about it. David's guilt is being compensated by his inordinate zeal for justice. David's guilt is being compensated by his inordinate zeal for justice. That's what's happening here. I mean, doesn't this describe people who are always nitpicking other people to death, just pointing out uh, you know, their faults and the ways in which they're, they're out of line, people who just love catching people and correcting people and pointing out their misgivings. It's not right. It's not pure. It's not holy. It's like, well, where's this coming from? Just this inordinate sense of injustice. Listen, what a psychological insight the Bible has into the human condition. David's zeal for justice is, is nothing more than the semi-conscious eruption of his own guilt. That's all this zeal for justice is. It's just an eruption of his own guilt. And what does Nathan say? Hey, David, come here, buddy. You are the man. And no, that wasn't a compliment. You are the man. Nathan's story was meant to illustrate David's sin, to show him his, his crime, that he would what? To, that he would repent. But remember the perspective of Bathsheba, that, that, that she was a victim of, of, of the most powerful man who callously and casually took the precious little the precious little that she had. She was a victim of unbridled power and lust. This is an ancient Near East Me Too tale that has unfortunately been carried, has carried its way all throughout time and throughout history. And as part of God's judgment on David, Bathsheba loses the baby. And so she's grieving again. And, and it's not unlike the story that we heard last week of, of Ruth and Naomi, who, who the, the, you know, the story of heartache and loss. Bathsheba loses her purity, her husband, her baby. The beautiful king and the queen in the king's palace, you, you must have imagined that everyone would have envied her. But underneath, it's all a story of sadness, of heartache, of abuse, of loss. And just before we move on to the hope, because there is hope coming, here's an application. Remember this if you don't remember anything else. Bathsheba has a soul and has dimension, and so does every person you come across. Listen, this Christmas, you will experience the Christmas lights. You will experience the Christmas parties, the Christmas cheer, the festive songs, the, the festive spirit. Everyone's dressed up. Everyone's laughing. But listen, underneath it all, for so many people, there are stories of sadness and stories of loss and loneliness. And if that's you, it may be because you have done real wrong like David. 
or maybe it's because you have had real wrong done to you like Bathsheba, things that have been taken away from you in your life that you can never, that can never be replaced. And all the lights and all the festivity just makes you sad. Listen, can we walk away from this story with incredible empathy for other people? Monica Lewinsky wrote in Vanity Fair, I'm so sorry you were alone. Those seven words undid me. They were written in a recent private exchange I had with one of the brave women leading the Me Too movement. Somehow coming from her, a recognition of sorts on a deep, soulful level, they landed in a way that cracked me open and brought me to tears. Yes, I had received many letters of support in 1998, and yes, thank God I had my family and friends to support me, but by and large, I'd been alone, so very alone, publicly alone, abandoned most of all by the key figure in the crisis who actually knew me well and intimately. That I had made mistakes on that, we can all agree. But swimming in, in that sea of aloneness was terrifying. One thing we get from this, may we all be attuned to the human condition that everyone around you has soul and dimension. And there's, there's more than meets the eye. And more often than not, underneath the light is loneliness Underneath the pleasantries of, of Christmas is a deep discouragement. That person who doesn't show up to the Christmas party, maybe it's because they don't like being around people this time of year. That person who drinks too much at the Christmas party, maybe it's because they feel deeply alone and deeply ashamed. What if we, in this room, this Christmas, walked around to the parties and through the lights and, and through all of the Christmas cheer as the most empathetic people of all? People in tune to what's happening in people's lives. The last people on earth to, to join in you know, pinpointing the faults of others. And the first people to recognize that everyone has a soul, everyone has dimension, just like Bathsheba. So we've got heartache in the passage, but we've also got hope, and, and there's a lot of it here. In Nathan's confrontation, David does repent, and that's fantastic, and, and, and we can do a whole other message on that, and, as we have in the past. But David comforts Bathsheba afterwards. Um, they conceive, and then a second son named Solomon arrives, and and that name Solomon essentially means that God's love is upon him. And then we read, we draw a line from there, and you read in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, that says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, why does it say Uriah's wife? What, what's up with that? Is she just, you know, somebody's wife? Is that what Matthew thinks of Bathsheba? Oh, she's just somebody's wife. Is he trying to shame Bathsheba? No. He's slamming David. You see, the reason why Bathsheba's name isn't mentioned is because it's another way of, of Matthew pinpointing David abused his power over this woman who wasn't his wife. He took something that wasn't his. But Bathsheba is still included in the family tree of Jesus. And when you read of her inclusion, in one sense you could go, this doesn't make any sense. It, it raises so many questions. Why Bathsheba? 
God had, or David had eight wives, ten concubines, had a whole, had lots of sons, had, had, had lots of options. If, 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 if he wanted Jesus to come through the line of David, he had lots and lots of options. Why Bathsheba? Listen, David, David did a lot of really great things in his life. Remember the, you know, the whole giant thing? You know, the little slingshot and little stone to the temple of the giant. And, you know, he holds his head up in victory. Da- David's a warrior. David's powerful. David is hot stuff. And, you know, you, you, he wrote much of the songbook of Israel. You read the Psalms. A lot of them are by King David. These beautiful Psalms. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man after God's own heart. But of all the events of his life, the author goes out of his way to pinpoint this incident in the genealogy of Jesus. That David took Uriah's wife. That David fathered a son through another man's wife. The genealogy of Jesus goes out of the way to point this out to us. And listen, this wasn't just a low point for David. This was a turning point for David. To this point, his story was a story of victory, a story of success. And now after this, after this happened, it's, a, it's complete chaos. David's sons are sleeping with their sisters, killing one another, fighting for the throne. One of, one of his sons, Absalom, attempts a coup, sleeps with all of David's wives in public. It's a complete mess. David is sorry, David is forgiven, but the consequences are real. The consequences are real. Have you ever had a low moment that you feel like turns into a turning point? You, you make a decision in your life, and it's the wrong one, and, and you feel like life is never going to be the same, and life is never the same? And, and it's almost as if, if you, would, you would do anything to take it back. That's David in this passage. Have you ever done something or has something ever been, you know, done to you that has absolutely been a turning point and changed the course of your life and you can't go back, what is, can't get back what has been taken from you and you live in shame, wishing that this whole thing was taken away from you, wishing that you could be spared all of the guilt and all of the pain? We'll go then and read Psalm 32. Because David wrote it, and he starts this way. David, after going through this whole ordeal, confesses, and he says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. And that word blessed is loaded. It means happy. It means fully satisfied. It means wholly complete. What David is saying here is that, 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 that the redemption of God in your life, his forgiveness, when it comes your way, it can make you more happy, more whole, more complete than before. That's what happens. God's forgiveness touches your sin. And when it touches your sin, it transforms you. And there's nothing like it in this life. It is a blessedness. It is a happiness. It is a wholeness. That's how God works. Again, of all the incidents, why this one? Because this is what God wanted to use to bring the Messiah into the world. Why Bathsheba? She she would, she could, she... She should never have been the wife of David. She was the wife of Uriah. But do you see the lineage of Jesus comes not in spite of David's sin, but through it. Two weeks ago, it was Tamar, very same thing. She deceives Judah. She sleeps with him. There's a lot of sin going on. And then what? Perez is born. 
And Jesus comes from Perez. God works not just in spite of your sin, but through it. And this, of course, is ultimately seen at the cross. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were filled with jealousy. And Judas betrays Jesus. And Pilate goes along with the crowd. And it's not in spite of their sin, but through their sin that God's plan of redemption, the cross, happens. And there on the cross is where God takes all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he absorbs the hit so that that we could have life with God, so that we could have union with God. Of all of David's wives, why Bathsheba? God is going out of his way to show you and show me that he is greater than our sin, that he is greater than the sins that have been done to us. From from, from the beginning, he had a plan to save us. He had a plan to fulfill his promise, and he will not feel, fail. There is no plan B with God. There is no plan B. It's not like you screw up, and God now has to come up with plan B. No, he only uses plan A, and he uses the faults, the failures, and the failures that have been done to you, and the wrongs that have been done to you. And he uses them for his purposes. God's grace is greater than our sin. And God's grace is greater than the sins that others can do to us. We are not that powerful to mess up God's plan. We can't do it. We're not qualified to do it. Christmas is about something big that has happened. There is something bigger that's happened than the sum total of your faults and your mistakes and your failures and all the wrongs that have been done to you. There is a bigger story happening with Christmas. And even the genealogy of Jesus only makes sense if you understand grace, the unmerited favor of God. I mean, these people are in the genealogy is very clear, not because they did good things, because they lived moral, upright, religious lives. That is not what put them in the family of God. They're only there by sheer grace alone, and it is shocking to us. It was shocking to the people then, and it should be still shocking to us today. No one, in fact, would have been more shocked than Matthew. Matthew, who wrote the the genealogy of Jesus, he was a tax collector. Matthew would have been an outcast religiously. In his day, he would have been seen as a cheat, as a crook, as an oppressor of the people of God, a failure, a loser. And so you can imagine Matthew is is in recording the genealogy of Jesus. It's like he he gets through the names and he's realized, I'm not so much surprised that Rahab's in there or Tamar's in there or, or even David's in there. I can't believe I'm in there. I can't believe I'm in the family tree of Jesus. And to believe the Christmas story is to be shocked and surprised by grace. And you know what grace is? Grace is the end of all your excuses. If grace is true, you're not too far gone. If grace is true, you haven't done something or some things to exclude yourself from the family of God. If grace is true, none of these things could disqualify you. But pastor, you don't you know what? I've stopped. No excuses. Grace opens up the door for each and every person to get in the family of God. Nothing can stop you. Nothing. You can find yourself at the family, in the family tree. Because it is a story of grace. And I'll end with this. Um, some of you might be uh, familiar with Kintsugi, um, which is that Japanese art 
of pottery making uh, from around the 15th century. And it's centered around broken, repairing broken pottery with, with lacquer and powdered gold and silver and platinum. And, and, and so breakages and repairs typically that you would want to hide, um, uh, instead of them being hidden, they're celebrated as, as part of the story of the history of the pottery. And, and collectors are so enamored with this, this art form that some of them even take valuable pottery and they smash it just so it can be pieced together with the lacquer and the gold and the platinum and the silver, the, the seams of Kintsugi. Listen, our God is a master potter, and his art form is Kintsugi. He takes the, the broken pieces. He does not take the perfect clay. Instead, he chooses all, as his medium, all of the broken shards, the, the mistakes, the, the parts that people want to throw away, and he does not hide the cracks at all, but he makes those the very charm and beauty of his art. And our mistakes, all the mistakes that have been done to us, you, they are God's work of art. And nothing can stop his artwork. He is committed to seeing beauty and flourishing in you and me. In fact, God may use our pains and our wounds and our, our shards to display his grace to other people. Just, just look at Bathsheba. She's not a tramp. She's not a tart. She's not... A whore. She's not that woman. No, no, no. She's the mother of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you to pick up the broken pieces of our lives. Uh, the things that we wish weren't there, the, the wrongs that we have done uh, to ourselves, to other people, the, the mistakes we've made and the mistakes that have been made to us. We need you to pick up the, the pieces this Christmas and make us whole. And make us the kind of people that look at every human being around us with, with soul and with dimension, that we might uh, draw those around us to the love, the forgiveness, the grace, and the hope. As we sit in the heartache with them, we, we might draw them to you because... We've been drawn to you. Through our heartache, you have given us hope. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.